hope that you brought your Bibles with you today and you can open them to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. We'll start there. The main text for today is Philippians 1, verse 12 through 30. So the Apostle Paul wrote, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And the most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, is proclaimed. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will return out for my deliverance, as it is my, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain." For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you bless this time, that the words that I speak, the ears that are listened, that are listening to these words, that we are all guided by your Holy Spirit, that the true meaning of your words, a true understanding of your scriptures would result, Father, and that you would be glorified. The name of Jesus would be lifted up and praised, and the Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. Um, as I was reading this and studying it, one of the things that, that crossed my mind as I'm looking at this was, was um, the providence of God. And this is maybe not the way people would normally look at the Scripture, but, but um, there's, uh, it, the providence of God is an amazing thing for us to think about. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm really looking at this whole text kind of through that lens, through that filter, to, to see what, that, what we can learn from that. And as we think about God and, and his providence, okay, God created everything. God created everything. We're not going to dispute that. He sustains everything. I mean, even, even if, God, if Christ wasn't sustaining the world, the molecules would fly apart, everything would disintegrate, there'd be nothing. So this, we're not existing just on our own. God sustains everything that's in place here, okay? Um, he owns everything. He has authority and dominion over everything. God has all power. God has all knowledge. God has all wisdom. God has everything. You know, even things that we can't imagine, God has or does or is. You know, we, we don't even, can't even think about all the attributes of God. I mean, what we're talking about here are the attributes of God, the things that, of who God is. 
You know, there's not a dust particle in this room. This room is probably filled with dust particles. I know it is. There's not a dust particle in this room or any place else that God doesn't know exactly where that is, exactly where it's going, where it came from, what it's going to become. He knows everything about every single dust particle. It's not a random thing that this dust particle is moving through the air. God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the atoms that hold together to make whatever substance they happen to make. God is sovereign over that. So God, because God is involved in the creation, he's involved in this in, keep, in keeping it going, and he's just as much in control of it, okay? John Piper just wrote a book, it was the, at the end of last year or the beginning of this year, I'm not sure which it is, called Providence. It's 751 pages. I did not read this book. <laughs> I have read parts of it, but I have not read that book. John Piper's short definition of providence, of providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. And he points out that sovereignty in and of itself is just power. The, 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 to do, you know, the, the authority, the power to do something. But what he is saying is it's more than just thinking about God's sovereignty, the God's right to do something, God's ability to do something. What it is, even more so, is God's purposeful sovereignty. So in other words, he has a purpose in his sovereignty. He has a purpose in what he does. Um, if you look at what he, what he talks about, about as, um, uh, as providence, is sovereignty plus wisdom plus goodness plus power plus authority plus love plus immutability which is his change plus um, his omnipresence that he's everywhere i mean plus 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 all of those things so his whole being combines with his sovereignty all the goodness of god all the the strengths of god the things that would make him be the most wonderful being in the world in the creation he, those are combined with his sovereignty to, to make his providence. Okay? Providence is nothing less. Okay, so here, there's a, a, this, this is a quote from a guy named John Flavel who wrote a book in 1678. So this is not a new idea. So this, some of the language might sound a little old. Providence is nothing else but the performance of God's gracious purposes and promises to his people. So it's God fulfilling his commands to us. Is God's caring for us. It's God's furthering the spread of the gospel. An, another quote that he had was, was this, but indeed providence is neither doeth nor can do anything that is really against the true interest and good of the saints. So there's nothing that God can do that's truly against us. So if, we, if we're running through a tough time, we think, is God against me? Is God testing me? What's going on here? Whatever he does, nothing that he can do is really against the true interest and good of the saints. That's the believers. For what are the works of providence, providence but the execution of God's decree and the fulfilling of his word? That's what providence is. God is fulfilling his word and decrees. And there can be no more in providence than is in them. So um, one of the things is, is, that is interesting is Psalm 57, verses 1 to 2 in this light. Think of this in, in light of providence. Be merciful, to me, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass away. I cry out to the Most High God, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. To God who fulfills his purpose to me, for me. And so, so God has a purpose for each one of us. God has a purpose for, for you. God will fulfill it. So we cry out to God, you know, God, this God is the God who loves you. This is the God who has ordained for you to be in this place. This is the God who fulfills his purpose in you. So God has a purpose. You know, this, the, just John Flavel goes on to, to write about, if this puzzles us, what shall we say when we see events produced in the world for the good of God's chosen by very hands and means which were intentionally employed for their ruin? So in other words, when somebody is working against somebody, and he gives the examples of Joseph in the Bible. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. 
I mean, he went, he was first to be killed, and then, of course, then he, they sold him to slavery. He went in Potiphar's house, and he ended up in prison. And, you know, the whole, the whole story, you know that story, but what was its purpose? Its purpose was to say that many might be saved. And think about Haman, a plot of Haman's. Remember Haman and Mordecai and Esther? Haman plotted against Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and to, to, to have, him, have him executed. And what turned it out happening? Haman was the one that was actually executed. Mordecai was raised up. See, God's purposes, even through difficult and, and, and hor- terrible things. And what about Daniel? Think about Daniel. The other princes in the kingdom were against him and, and, and uh, issued, got the king to issue decrees that they knew he would violate. And what Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Well, what happened to, lion? to Daniel? He comes out victorious over the lion's den because God saved him. So in other words, even the difficult things that we go through, God has ordained them and they can be to our benefit, to his glory, and to the furtherance of the gospel. So the interesting thing that I think that one of the, the probably the, the key thing that Flavel says that is, I think, so good is the word is what interprets the works of God. So we can, we can look at the works of God and we can look at providence and things that are happening around us and we're going to try to figure out in our head what's going on, but the only way to truly interpret the works of God is by the word of God. Providences in themselves are not a perfect guide. They, only, they often puzzle and entangle our thoughts, but bring them to the word and your duty will be quickly manifested. You'll know what going on. If we read, if we compare what's happening in our lives, can't compare what's happening in the world around us to the Word of God, that's our, our base, our, our, where we can base things on. So God will accomplish His purposes. That's exactly what it is. God will always accomplish His purposes. Um, so let's, let's uh, look a little bit here at, at, uh, at our text. If we look, Paul, the author of, of Philippians, if you just a little of the backstory here, if you remember, he was arrested in Jerusalem, um, taken for, to Caesarea for trial. After languishing in prison there for two years, he appealed to Caesar in Rome. Um, during the trip to Rome, he and they, that's where they had the shipwreck. That's um, he, he got they, they got on, the, on Malta and he got a poisonous snake bite, and people thought he was a god. I mean, all these things happened, you know, in, in his life there. You know, so he ended up in prison, or, you know, in, under, under um, being held for trial in Rome, where he was waited about another two years for trial. So Paul is writing the letter to the church at Philippi to encourage them, to let them know how he's doing, and to just to be encouraged them because of their concern for him. So let's look at verse 12 in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So if we look back to this and we what, describe what has happened here, if, you, if this story is told in Acts chapter 28 and preceding chapters, um, Acts 28 verse 16 says, And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So what was the situation here? So the imperial guard were the, the, the elite uh, soldier, you know, military force of, the, of Caesar. They were, they were the only military force that was allowed in, this, in Rome. They were all completely loyal to Caesar. Um, that's where they, were, they, would, they would take care of everything in you know, protecting Caesar, protecting Rome, um, they carried out penal things for him as well. So the imperial guards were, for, were charged with protecting the emperor and the imperial household. Um, Paul would have been chained to a, a soldier, and it talks about that. He would have had like a, probably a shackle on his, on, his, on his arm. There would have been, they're guessing, an 18-inch long chain with another shackle on the end of that. That shackle would have been attached to a soldier. 24 hours a day, he is within 18 inches of a soldier for two years, okay? What does it say here? He said in, in Acts 28, 30 to 31, he says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So he was allowed to stay in rented lodgings under house arrest. He um, was allowed to have visitors come to see him. And so in the the scripture says, um, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Well, who was chained to him 18 inches away as he's preaching the gospel, as he's teaching the gospel? These imperial guard soldiers, they're there. And what, you know, the believers in Rome would come in to see him and they were encouraged by his, here he is, a Roman soldier sitting next to him and he's proclaiming the gospel. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing, so the believers in Rome would have come and probably helped provide for him when he was under arrest. The Philippians sent money to him three times, I think, while he was there to help him. So it became known, he was known throughout the community. He was known throughout the area. He was, this was not a surprise. Um, uh, you know, it was not, uh, Paul's here. People knew that Paul was there. Um, and and um, so the next verse is what is, is, takes it a whole, whole nother track. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what, what happened to put Paul in prison in the first place was accusations by the high priest Ananias, which led to Paul's imprisonment first in Jerusalem and then tra- transferred to Caesarea. Um, and uh, so, so because of these things, the reason for Paul's imprisonment was also known to the, to the guard. They knew that what was happening here was it wasn't a situation where he had broken a law. It wasn't a situation where he was uh, insurrectionist raising uh, up against the government. It was because of his faith in Christ. The Jews were opposed to what he was doing because he was preaching Christ. He was preaching something different than what their traditional religion was. And so the reason for Paul's imprisonment was, it says here, and it became known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So, you know, um, this, this put a whole different situation in what Paul was doing. I mean, if you look at the, at the other the, the, the details of Paul's journeys throughout the missionary journeys, what, what you see is Paul doing a lot of public preaching. He goes into the, the square, he goes into the theaters, he goes in different places, and he does public preaching. Well, God had a different idea this time. Paul, this was a very different approach than what Paul was used to doing. So he's not doing public preaching, he's preaching to individuals. And yet what happened? Here again, this is divine providence. God brought these things to pass. What, what ended up happening was, the, the, it says, the, what he was doing became known throughout the whole imperial guard, what was going on. So the soldiers, every ship that would come on, be a different soldier, would hear him preach the gospel, would hear him work on it. So they would, they would, um, they would have heard the gospel. He would have, they were, they were, um, in the household of, of, the, of Caesar. Um, this was communicated to all of them. And matter of fact, one of the things that you see that shows some of the outcome of this is in Philippians 4.22, when he is basically doing the signature at the end of the lever, at the end of his letter to the Philippians, he says, quote, all the saints greet you. The saints are the believers, especially those of Caesar's household. In other words, there were believers in Caesar's household. Now, now, Caesar's household was the most powerful. This is the most powerful family in the world at this time. You know, and and what's happening is a place where God's word would have had a very, very difficult time getting. And here, what did God do? He put Paul under arrest so that he could gain access into the Caesar's household. And so you just see here, book of divine providence, what Paul had to put up with. He had to suffer through imprisonment and transportation and shipwrecks and snake bites and everything else. But by the same token, God used that for his glory to the, to the presence of his, of his work. Um, it's also interesting that archaeological work at Philippi uncovered artifacts that seemed to prove that retired soldiers from the Imperial Guard often retired to Philippi. And so some of the Philippian church 
may have actually had personal connections with those guarding Paul in, in Rome. And so for them to hear the encouragement that they, that they see that Roman soldiers that they knew are coming to faith would be a real encouragement to them. So Paul is rejoicing at the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ here in the heart of the Roman Empire. So, you know, and you still, you look at why was, why was, why was he, why was Paul under arrest? I mean, you say, well, he was a prisoner of Caesar. Well, that's true. He was a prisoner of Caesar in, on, the, on the surface. But who was he really a prisoner of? You know, the reason that Paul was imprisoned was for Christ. The people even there recognized it. It wasn't because he broke any laws. He was in chains for Christ. Physically, yes, he was a prisoner of Caesar. But looking at, look at Philippians 1.1, Paul writes there, Paul and Timothy, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And if in our English translation, Paul describes himself as a servant. But if you look at the original Greek word, it literally means bond servant or slave. So Paul honestly calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. So he was really, I mean, honestly, he was in, in, in chains for Christ. He was in chains because to, to preach the gospel, to promote the gospel, to move the gospel forward into these areas where God has ordained for him to be. And then looking ahead at verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Well, so we see the benefit of Paul's being in prison, of his being able to preach the word and get it into Caesar's household. A second benefit is here, the brothers, these are the Christian brothers in Rome, have much more courage here to speak the word, to more bold to speak the word without fear. And so what's happening here is a second fold. Maybe Paul isn't able to be out there preaching the word from the squares and, and, and debating with different people, but the brothers in, Philip, in, in Rome are doing it for him. So it's even bigger because it's not just him. It's all these brothers and sisters that are actually doing this. So here again, this is another example of divine providence. God is using what, you know, Paul had a little dream. Okay, I'm going to go and preach in Rome and, 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 and help people and show people Christ. But God had a bigger vision. God put him in prison. God put him in a situation where, where others would do the work for him. And, and it, it, was, it was amazing. Um, if you look at verse 15, it talks about this a little bit more. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Okay, so there were some people who actually, and there's reading the commentators about this, these were not false teachers. These are not Judaizers or anything like that. They are real, honest, they're teaching a true gospel, but they were not doing it for the right reasons. They were doing it for, uh, for their own benefit, for, to, to get back at Paul. Um, but here again, they were doing it out of rivalry and envy, here again, but the ones, the brothers that were doing it for goodwill as well. So the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of self-ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, so what did they do it? They did it out of selfish ambition. They were doing it to benefit themselves, for their own reputation, for their own, to make money. I don't know what they did it, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And they also did it, to afflict him in prison, for you know, to stir up people and hopefully create problems for Paul while he's in prison. So even though their motives were um, were bad, wrong, what does Paul say in verse eighteen? What then? Only then that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So even though these people are doing it for wrong reasons, he's still rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. And once again, divine providence. You see that take place there. God's using people that he wouldn't have used. Paul would never have used those people. Yet God was using those people to spread the gospel. This next section of text um, is challenging for us personally, I think, 
is, you know, the, the, in, the, in the NIV or the ESV Bible is called, it's entitled section heading, To Live is Christ. Um, and so coming up on verse 19, they're picking up the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. So if we look at, so here what we see is Paul is asking for their prayers. And listen to what he says earlier in Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 3 to 5. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here, Paul is praying for them. Okay, you see that in verse 4 always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And now what's here, what's, what's Paul doing? For I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit. So he's first of all asking for their prayers. And that's a very, very important thing for us to do, to pray for one another, to pray for them and to ask for their prayers of us. And, and you know, Paul is setting that example for us here. Um, so, and he was talking about um, um, that the, the, the Spirit of Christ, Jesus Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will turn out, the deliverance will turn out for my deliverance. And this deliverance could be one of two things. It could be either physical deliverance from prison, or it could be deliverance from the sin and strife of this world and to be in the presence of Christ. So it could go either way, but deliverance. If we look at verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that it will not that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And um, one of the commentators said this really what, what Paul is thinking about here is Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 3 to 5. And this is a Psalm of David. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces are never, shall never be ashamed. And you'll see, so you see the, the word ashamed is at the end of this one. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And then here at the beginning of verse 20, in the middle there, it's about, I, I will not at all, and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. And then when we talk about, oh, magnify the Lord, it's actually the same word that Christ will be honored in my body. So, I mean, I think this has helped us to see this, that we, want to, we, that we want to magnify the Lord together. That's Paul's prayer, that we magnify the Lord together, that we exalt his name together, and, and, that, um, and that we would not be ashamed, that we would not um, let down Christ in what we would be doing. Um, so, so when Christ talks about, um, or when Paul talks about Christ being honored in his body, he's talking about this earthly life. He's talking about when it, the Christ will be honored in my body. You know, his physical body is the his his body is the physical means of, of ministry here on earth. So when we when we are ministering to others, it's through our physical body. Okay, the important thing for Paul is not life or death, but rather it is faithfulness to Christ. So whether he's delivered or in one way or not, what he is, is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He is more concerned about his witness than whether he lives or dies. And so, and this is even, if we look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So here again, he knows that he might not survive. He might be this might be the end of his life in prison, okay? But he's willing to give up his life. He's willing to be used up for Christ that others might come to faith in Christ. That's the sacrifice he's willing to give. You know, Paul, prior to him being in Rome, actually wrote the, the book, the, the book in the Bible that we have, Romans, okay? He wrote that letter to the Romans um, a couple years before, probably a couple years before he was actually held in prison in Rome. So they would have known who he was. They got that, the church in Rome got that letter. Um, and this is what he said 
in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, if Christ is not glorified through our physical body, he's not glorified at all, because that's what we, we live in our physical bodies right now. So God needs to be, you know, the way we glorify God is through our physical bodies. And that doesn't mean by eating right. I'm talking about how we live. How do we live, okay? Not that eating right isn't a good thing, because it is. And Paul also hoped that Christ would be glorified in his death, in Paul's death. When Paul died, he wanted God to be, Christ to be glorified in his death. And this next verse, verse 21, is such a, such, I mean, such a powerful verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, another letter Paul wrote, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, that really tells us how we live in the flesh, how we live in this life. We've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's what we need to think about, okay? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. So if Christ gave himself for me, what is my response? I need to live for Christ. So for Paul, living, for Christ, living life meant to live for Christ. That was preaching the gospel, seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom, if he lives, it's to serve Christ. And the verse says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For him to die is to go to be with Christ. Charles Spurgeon has a quote here that I thought was really good. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he lived, he lived to know more of Christ, studying his person, and learning by his happy experience so that he increased in his knowledge of his Lord and Savior, Paul might well say, for to me, to live is Christ, to know Christ more, to imitate Christ more, to preach Christ more, and to enjoy Christ more. And to die is gain, because death, he felt, would, be, would, would free him from all sin and from all doubts as to his state in the present and the future. It would, gain, it would be gained to him, for then he would be delivered from all suffering, and he would find above all his Savior and be a partaker in his glory. For if we are, for, and this is, I'm done with the quote now, for if we are in Christ, it is all gained. We have nothing to lose. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I mean, that is, that really sums up the life of a Christian. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which, I, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, Paul is hard-pressed. Does he, does he stay does he go? Does he leave? Does he die? Does he, does he want what I would... I mean, there's a, there's a sense where he wants to be with Christ. Okay? So he's hard-pressed, torn of which to chew. His Paul's desire is to be with Christ. You know, how many of us can say that our desire is to be with Christ? How many of us can say that to live is Christ and to die is gain? How many of us have our roots so firmly planted in this world today that it's hard for us to say dying is gain? We're so entangled in possessions 
in things that we're doing here, and and um, I can I'm speaking for myself here now, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying it is a hard thing. Paul was so sold out to the gospel that for him to live was Christ, to die is gain. Is for me to live Christ? Well, maybe a little bit. For me to die. Am I, am I ready to die right now just to, because it's gain? Am I, is that my attitude? You know, I mean, that's, it really challenges us to think about our relationship with Christ and what we're willing to do for the, for the cause of the gospel. One, one of the other things I think is, that, is, that is pressed here is, um, is several of the commentators I read talk about this when I, when I was looking at this verse here. The idea of my desires to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. And he talked to talk about the idea of death and the death of the souls that when we die, our body is in the ground. But our soul, you know, some people would teach their soul sleep, but that's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible teaches when Jesus was on the cross with the, the, the soldier to his, to his right, I think it was, said he confessed Christ and Christ said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's what happened. When you die, if Christ hasn't come yet, when you die, you are immediately in the presence of God. You are immediately in the presence of Christ. We look forward, and, and, and it says, and it's interesting, I think he says, um, it is hard, it is far better for my desire to depart and be with Christ, which th for that is far better. So in one of the places, it's good to be in this world, to be in your body, to be living and preaching and teaching and doing all these things. It's better to be with Christ when you're without your body. Your soul is with Christ. That's better. But what's best is the resurrection. The resurrection when your body is raised up, you have the new glorified body, your soul is reunited with your body, and we spend eternity with Christ, with God, in the new heavens and the new earth. Real physical living. We were designed for real physical living. We're not going to be these ethereal spirits floating around in, in some place forever. There'll be a period where we will be spirits, but eternity will be spent as living, breathing creatures with bodies. In heaven right now, Christ is referred to as, as having a body, a human body in, in heaven right now. Christ is seated at the right hand of God as a man. And, there, and, and he's there interceding for us in prayer. So, um, the other thing is, is that there's no second chance. After you die, that's it. Okay? There's no purgatory. There's no, there's no other opportunity to say, okay, I, I, I see, I want to put my faith in Christ. I want to follow the Lord. It's not happening. You're done. After, after you die, you'd have no more chances. And to be honest with you, if you die not in Christ, you're not going to want Christ. That's just the way it's going to be. People who, people who, after they die, realize there is a God, they were not part of the elect, they are not going to be ones that actually even want to, put their, to try to serve God. Um, so there is no second chance after death. He, in verse 24, he goes on to say, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So the word that he uses there for progress, so he's talking about, he's talking about the Philippians here. He wants them to progress in their faith. It's the same Greek word that they used back in verse 12, that he used back in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel. The same word that was used to advance the gospel, translated that way in verse 12, is for your progress and join the faith. When he's talking to the believers there. So it's either way, progression or advance. They both are, they're both describing people in the, the, the advancing the gospel and also advancing in their faith. So verse 26 so that you, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So 
Paul knew that his work among the Philippians wasn't finished. He was planning to come again. And here again, this is divine providence. God is, is ordaining all these things to happen. And then this next section of, of, of the scriptures um, comes together and um, kind of is the application of what he's been teaching here. So this is where, this is where we're applying what, we, what he's just been teaching in these last verses. And I like it when the application's easy, okay? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here Paul is saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there's a, one other place that the, it, you, it could also be translated only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ could almost be translated as only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that would be something that would be very interesting to, um, to the Philippians. Um, the, Philippi, the Philippi was proud of being a Roman colony. So, I mean, remember this letter is being written to them. They were a Roman colony um, which was unusual in all these places out there. They were normally their conquered lands, but this was a Roman colony, so they had the honor of, of, being, of being actually Roman citizens. They had the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship, um, so, that, so they would understand this language of being citizens. Um, what, what we... Um, that they were also uh, looking to Christ, okay, for, we talk about this, only worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the citizenship is with Christ, it's not with Caesar. So they're looking to, see, to Christ for how they're to live. So their primary allegiance is to God and his kingdom. All right, And that's something we can apply to ourselves today. Our primary allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom and not to our civil government. Not that we don't honor our civil government, not that we don't honor... And, and obey authorities over us, but our primary allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. Um, D.A. Carson says, conduct, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Okay, so conduct worthy of the gospel is conduct that promotes the gospel, is what he's saying. Um, basically, this this. Thesis, only let your minor of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, is the thesis statement for this entire letter. How do we live? How do we live to glorify Christ? How do we live in a way, in a manner, worthy of the gospel of Christ? Um, so he talk, the language here is, is really, really good. It's talking about what do we do? Um, Standing firm together. So they're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, so that they're so that they're standing they're standing firm, not just standing, they're standing firm together in one spirit, one mind, and then this is good. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. And here again, these the Philippians, many of them were equated with the soldiers, and the, the striving side by side is a picture of the Roman. Legions marching together in lockstep. I mean, that's what it is. Here we are, marching together in lockstep to, uh, to, to, with, the, with the gospel for the faith. So we're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here, emphasis on unity. The unity of, of God's people working together, standing together, striving together. And then verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So what are we doing? We're striving together, we're standing together, and we're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. Okay? So basically, he's talking, we, we are re they're refusing to be afraid of their opponents. All right? 
They're refusing to be afraid of persecution. He's telling them to, that that's, they should not be afraid of, of opponents, of persecution. The strength for this comes from God. That's what he's saying. And, but of your, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So our salvation is from God. So where does our strength come? Our strength comes from God. Our opponents will realize that this comes from God. Anyone who opposes God is headed for eternal destruction. So that's where we talked here. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay? So, um, in verses 29 and 30 here, the final two verses here, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So um, Ephesians 2.8 kind of helps us to understand this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this has been granted to us, these things in verse 28, you know, the the clear sign of our salvation, this is from God. This has been granted to us for, for the sake of Christ. And you should not only believe in him, but also suffer his, for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had. So in Ephesians it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so here again, faith is a gift from God, and persecution, therefore, is also a gift from God. Being willing to suffer in, for Christ's sake is what that is. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a great privilege. That's what he's telling them here. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So this is a conflict that Paul's been in and it's a conflict that we're going to be in. We shouldn't expect just easy going. Suffering for the sake of Jesus is a great privilege. So in closing here, Warren Wiersbe has a couple of, of, of quick points that I, that I liked. About Paul, he says, Paul put Christ first. Paul lived to glorify Christ. What's the second thing he did? Paul put others second. What others, that others heard the gospel was more important than his own comfort. So he gave up everything to preach the gospel. And then the third thing was he put himself last. Paul willingly offered up his life for Christ, the gospel, and others. And then if you even look then again at verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear of you, which is a plural you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side with the gospel. So what's the point there? You are not standing alone. You are not standing alone. We are together. Christianity is not a single solitary thing. It is something that is done collectively, people together. And, the, and then in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That comes from verse 28. What is that? You, guess what? You're on the winning side. If you put your faith in Christ, you are on the winning side. Christ is victorious in the end. So what's the third point, a third point here from these, these last few verses? It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. That's that's. That is a privilege that we should look at. When we're suffering for Christ, it is a privilege that we do that. Um, there's a song that comes to my mind, and, and here again, it's, a, it's um, I'll, I'll, I'll remember the chorus, that's all I need, but he will hold me fast. Think about that. He will hold me fast. Is, we can always count on Christ to hold us fast, that no matter what happens, the providence of God, Christ holds us fast. And um, we are secure in Christ. 
We are secure in our faith if we put our faith in Christ. And, and, and you know, if, if there's anyone here today who's never put their faith in Christ, I mean, we can't, we're, we're, we're sinful creatures. We fall short of the glory of God. There's, there's, there, we're, there's evil in us. There's no way that, that God can let us into heaven. We've sinned against God, who is an eternal God. And by sinning against the eternal God, we, have, we are justified. God is justified in giving us eternal condemnation. Okay? So what is our only hope? Our only hope is not in ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't do anything to pay the price. We don't have enough to pay it except to give our lives for eternity, eternal condemnation. So what do we need? We need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we could never live. He paid because he was perfect. He paid the price for our sins of the cross. He, he, he absorbed the wrath of God that you and I each deserved on the cross to pay the price for our sins. If we put our faith in Christ, Christ is the substitute for us. He becomes the one that God sees when we stand before the judgment throne. God sees Christ in us and sees Christ rather than our sinful selves. And so Christ gets us in. That's our, that's our, if you want to say, is there a ticket to heaven? Our ticket is Christ. That is the only way into heaven. We can't be good enough. We can't do good enough. We are hopeless and helpless on our own. So our only hope is Jesus Christ. And uh, my prayer is that, um, is that each one of us here has put our faith in Christ, that God has opened your eyes and your ears through his Holy Spirit so that you can understand the truths of his gospel, so that you can believe. Without Christ, it is impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for, um, for, for your benefits, for your blessings, for this, for this message, Father, that you have in your scripture that, um, that, um, that the word that is here in your scriptures would not go out void, but that it would affect hearts and minds and people be drawn to you. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.